All right, if you would open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We'll actually be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. I know the bulletin says um, 4 through 8, but just couldn't help but expand this text as I studied it. I have to say, I was reading this week some... Oh, I don't know if you've ever seen those. What would you? What book would you take to a desert island? Those desert island scenarios, and you know, my favorite that I read was uh, How to Build a Boat, <laughs> you know, book. Um, but I think if if I had a desert island passage, it, it might be this passage. This is just so rich with the gospel, with really, it's a fully orb view uh, of Christianity. So I'm so excited to dig into it. I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Titus three verses one through eight. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, this the reading of God's word. Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them in your truth. And he said to his father, your word is truth. Let's, let's pray before we come before this passage together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity uh, to be spoken to, Lord, um, through your word. To come together this, this morning, Lord, to sit at your feet and to hear uh, you, Lord, speaking to us through your holy and inspired word. We pray that you would show us Christ and show us the way that you would have us to live in light of the great grace that we've received. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> it's easy to forget, I think you'll agree with me, just how greatly we've been forgiven, isn't it? It's easy to forget just how great God's goodness, His loving kindness to us truly is. We're often like the man who was forgiven the great debt that he could never repay to the king. And having been forgiven that debt, he goes out and throttles his servant, who owes him mere pennies. Like that man, we often have an an arrogant amnesia about God's goodness and saving love to us in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, preaching on Titus chapter three, uh, he said, "If you have judged your name, if you have judged yourselves with candor, you will not judge others with severity." That is to say, a, a humble, honest assessment of who we once were and who we now are because of Jesus. That changes our attitude. It gives us a, a gentle, 
humble disposition to people who still are far from the Lord. And this passage in Paul's letter to Titus, his, uh, his faithful um, brother in the Lord, son in the Lord in many ways, who he left in Crete to establish the, the church that was beginning and growing there in Crete. Uh, this passage really helps us with that, that honest and humble assessment of who we are. And it also has enduring relevance uh, for us today, not just because it's part of God's word, not just because it's the unchanging message of the gospel, but really in particular because of our changing context, the context in which we live. I think we could say that perhaps now more than ever, we're not unlike this little island in the Mediterranean called Crete, where Titus is ministering. Uh, Crete uh, can be seen in our culture. We see ourselves in what we know about Crete. It was a pagan society with really no regard for God's truth. There was um, many different religious beliefs swirling about on the island of Crete, even as the gospel was taking root there. It was known for its um, crooked politics. It was known for a dishonest marketplace. It was known for really being a a kind of a scoundrel society. Um, You know, today if we say someone dealt dirty with someone, back then it was called to play the Cretan. Now that's that's what it meant. If you double-cross someone, if you are, you know, self-seeking and self-interested and conniving, that was being a Cretan. It was called Cretanizing. So it just gives you an idea, a picture of just how twisted and warped um, this society was. And, you know, I think we can see a little bit of ourselves in, in the culture of Crete. I mean... We look around at our own culture and we have abortion on demand. Just this last week, a professor at Princeton, uh, of all places, the place that that gave us some of the most stalwart uh, defenders of the Reformed faith back in the day, um, this Princetonian professor is saying that it's okay if you abort a baby because that baby didn't have a future because it was aborted. And the logic there is so twisted. It's, It's ridiculous. Um, a culture that wants to in every way wander from the ways of the Lord. We see it in the, in the insanity that unfolded this weekend in Charlottesville. Just absolute insanity. Um, you know, it's a tragic statement about the relationship uh, between peoples in our country and the sin of racism that is still very much alive. Um, as we're going to see, it's interesting in, in Titus chapter 3, our life before Christ was described as uh, hated by others and hating one another. And if that wasn't on full display this weekend, uh, I don't know what was. So um, I just say that because we come to this passage and we hear these exhortations, and I want us to think about it um, just in our own context, how, how well it actually relates uh, to, to the specifics that, that Paul was instructing Titus here. And these exhortations that we find in verses 1 through 8, they're really just as difficult to follow as they were then. Submission to authority and seeking the good of others. That's basically uh, a summary of what Paul wants Titus to teach the Cretan believers. Uh, And that's that's a struggle. You know, think about it in their shoes. It's a countercultural struggle to overcome as we grow in holiness, to not look out for your own interests, but to look out for the interest of others. Um, And on the other hand, we have have the opposite struggle. Maybe as we've grown in the faith, we have the struggle against smug self-righteousness that thinks in ourselves we're really something to brag about because now we really get it, unlike these other heathens around us that still just just don't. And this passage takes the wind out of any bragging, any any boasting in our own strength. So here in Titus 3, 1-8, we're challenged with the same message that they needed to learn on Crete, and it's this. 
Because God has been so good to us in Christ, when we were hateful fools, we must humbly live for the good of others in a hateful world. I'll say that again. Because God has been so good to us in Christ, when we were hateful fools, hated by others and hating one another, but he's been good to us. Therefore, we must humbly live for the good of others in a hateful world. Before we dig into this um, passage, I want to take a minute just to explain what it is we have in front of us, what we have in Titus 3, especially verses 4 through 7, which will be our focus this morning. Um, we have here one of Paul's five, uh, the five passages in Paul where he concludes by saying, the saying is trustworthy. Or sometimes he says, the saying is trustworthy and, and worthy of all acceptation. In other words, um, what we have here is, it's really interesting. We have these sayings, these perhaps creeds that were known and used at large in the early church. And it's really fascinating. These, these um, sayings that were woven into Paul's writings become scripture, right? Because we find them inscripturated by Paul using them in his letters. But Paul only chose them because these were sayings that people were using in the church that were faithful summaries of truth. I find that really interesting, and I'm reminded of what B.B. Warfield said one time. I think I've shared this before, but he said, The gospel has been embraced and lived. It has been trusted and not found wanting. And the souls that have found its blessedness have had time to frame its precious truths into formulas. And he goes on to say, not just dry, rote formulas that we stand and repeat and sit, but formulas that are filled with the feeling and emotion of souls that have been redeemed, have been satisfied with this glorious truth of Christ and the gospel. And we have one of those sayings right here. And I think it also helps us to see how good and appropriate it is to take the truth of God's word and to hammer it out into concise creeds and instructive catechisms, even expansive confessions or beautiful hymns like we've sung this morning. Of course, those creeds and confessions we have, they're not in scripture, they're secondary to God's word, but insofar as they're faithful to what God's word teaches, they, they're, they're, they play a worthy part in our Christianity, in our, in our Christian life. So we have this faithful saying that is just, it's just jam-packed with glorious truths. We're going to dig into it this morning, uh, looking at four rich aspects of our salvation, from, from Titus 4 to 7 especially, four rich aspects of our salvation. And we won't spend even time on, on all four probably more time on one and two, and then three and four should be a lot shorter. But we'll, we'll spend some time digging into this, looking at uh, the foundation, the foundation of our salvation, the fount of our salvation, the future, and the fruit. So foundation, fount, future, and fruit. First, the foundation of our salvation. And what we see is that the foundation of our salvation is God's mercy in Christ. Look at verse four, at the beginning of verse five. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So this saying, this, this creed, starts off about as beautifully as it possibly could, right? With the, the good, loving, merciful, saving God. His goodness, his loving kindness. These two words are actually used together so often outside of Scripture in ancient Greek that it's one idea. These were, these were like peas in a pod. It's words that you expect to go together. Goodness and loving kindness. But we're going to look at them separately because it really gives us a, a full picture of God's saving favor towards us. 
And what goodness, what goodness really means is seen best in contrast. And we find the same word in Romans 11.22. Romans 11.22 says, Note then the kindness, or, or goodness, same word, and the severity of God. So kindness on the one hand. The word translated goodness in Titus chapter 3 versus God's severity. We deserve God's severe side, don't we? The wages of sin is death. That, that's the severity that we deserve. But we get his goodness. We get his kindness and his mercy. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So even though we deserve the severe punishment of God, we get his goodness in Christ. And we really couldn't deserve it less. And you see that if you look at verse 3. We don't deserve this at all. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a stark description of our lives before this goodness and loving kindness of God uh, touched our hearts with the grace of Christ. We were God-hating fools. We were hated by others. We hated one another. We were disobedient, deceived, blinded by our sin. We don't deserve any of this goodness and loving kindness that we see in this passage. We don't deserve it at all. And this radically changes our attitude toward others who still haven't received this goodness and loving kindness. That people who are still what we once were. It's really the main point of Paul's instruction in this whole passage that God's goodness to us in Christ, even when we were hateful fools, should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we act and uh, regard those who still don't know the Lord Jesus. We should live humbly. He's addressing the way we need to live in the world among those who still haven't received this goodness. In Titus 3.1, he tells the, the the Christians about uh, how they should live, saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Where it says perfect courtesy there, it could just as well be translated true humility. Show true humility toward all people. But think through that list again. To speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy or true humility to all people. It makes you wonder if uh, Paul listened into our conversations this past week. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, maybe, maybe he overheard something. I mean, Paul, did you hack into my social media account? Paul, were you listening to my conversation over lunch with my friend about this or that that's happening in our country? Did you overhear what I said about those fools that I work with that still just don't get it? Did you overhear how I lashed out at that person who's still blinded by sin and in need of the grace of God? See, it's so applicable. It just shows us that the human heart has struggled with these things forever and the redeemed heart continues to do so too and needs that reminder. Instruct the church to be submissive, to not speak evil of people to show gentleness and true humility toward all. And Paul isn't opposed to speaking the truth about sin. That's something I want to make sure we understand as we look at this. Um, in, in chapter 1 of Titus, he, he quotes a different saying, a very different saying. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
<laughs> when you read that, it's almost like he says, hey, they said it, not me. Uh, he's, not, he, he's not saying that we shouldn't speak about sin as sin. We should speak out against sin, whether it's adultery or abortion, whether it's rebellion against the authorities, whether it's racism, whatever the case may be, we speak against it for what it is. But he's talking here about a rebuke that may be brutal and honest, but it's a rebuke that has a redemptive purpose because the next verse in chapter 1 says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. It's not a rebuke for no reason. He's not just ranting or venting. It's a, it's a precise purpose this rebuke has so that they would be sound in the faith. The goal of calling things what they are is so that people would live and understand or live in the, the mercy of God and understand his goodness to us. And sometimes we forget that second step. We're willing to quote the Cretan saying, one of their own said, but we don't do it with a, a, a redemptive purpose, a rebuke that is to lead someone into a stronger faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's really not what he's talking about in Titus 3 when he's saying, speak evil of no one, be gentle. He's talking about that smug self-righteousness that we're prone to show towards others. Uh, because we've received goodness, yet we think somehow we're good because of it. We're, we're the ones who deserved this goodness from the Lord. So that's the goodness of God, the goodness of God. But there's a second word. Um, here in the ESV, it's translated loving kindness, and it's the word where we get philanthropy. It's a word we're familiar with, right? The definition of the word is affectionate concern for and interest in humanity. But this word is, I mean, it's an old old word that actually plays into an interesting story that the, Crete, the Christians at this Greek island Crete would have understood and known. It plays into the story of Prometheus. There's a story they were very into, these, um, the Greek mythology. They found papyri there that, that show that their religions included all of this stuff about the pantheon and the Greek gods. So they would have known this story. Um, Prometheus was a titan in, in Greek mythology. He was a member of the Pantheon, and he was known as the creator of mankind. And one ancient author describes his crime, the thing that put him out of sorts with all the other gods, uh, false gods, uh, as his excessive affection for mortals. Same word, just a little different form. It's philanthropy to mortal, mortals. So here's this titan, the creator, so-called, so who shows excessive affection toward mortals like you and me. It's interesting, isn't it, that that would make its way even into the pagan myths at Crete. That, that there's this longing for our creator to show interest and love in the creation, in us, in mankind. And how amazing would it be to know that story and then hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. For these Cretan Christians to know now that this myth, this too-good-to-be-true story is actually true. The creator does show philanthropy toward human beings. Not Prometheus, of course, but our Savior, Jesus Christ, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, towards us. So this goodness and loving kindness appear on the scene, not as a reward for works, but as a rescue plan for our redemption. When it appeared, we read, He saved us. Three of the most wonderful words in Scripture. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So when it appeared, and we should ask the question, when did this goodness and loving kindness of God appear? We have something similar said in Titus 2.11. 
who read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But what does it mean that grace has appeared? Grace, goodness, loving kindness. But how has it appeared? You know, sometimes we throw around these words like grace, mercy, loving kindness, as if they were just something in our theological dictionary. Uh, We throw them around in the abstract. But these things never come to us in the abstract. They come to us in person, in a person, in the person. 1 Timothy 1, 8-10. God, quote, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in the person and work of Christ on our behalf. And that is the foundation of our salvation. No merit of my own his anger to suppress, right? We sing, my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And that only comes to me because of the mercy of God. So we see the foundation of our salvation is God's mercy to us in Christ. The second thing we see is the fount of our salvation is the Holy Spirit poured out richly through Christ. Look at verse 5 and into verse 6. We read, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's so much packed into these little phrases, as we would expect in this sort of Christian creed from the early church. It's very likely that this could have been a form used in like a baptismal liturgy. Um, I remember the phrase from growing up in a Baptist church, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Maybe some of you have been in a church and you heard that. that. That's burned onto my brain because that's what a good liturgy does. That's what a good creed like this does. It, it takes truth and it, it implants it on us. And it's very likely that this could have been used. We can't know for sure if it was a baptismal liturgy or not. Um, But connecting this verse to the sacrament of baptism is commonplace in the Reformed tradition. It's a scripture proof in what our standards teach about baptism. It's it's embedded in the, the language of the Heidelberg Catechism on baptism. And many, many Reformed pastors and teachers have included this uh, passage when they discuss it. The Trinitarian focus here fits, right? The Lord told the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have all three persons of the Trinity present here. So we don't know for sure, but I think there's some indication that this is related to baptism. But maybe I wonder if you've ever read this and and read the phrase, the washing of regeneration, and it made you nervous as a Protestant. The washing of regeneration. I think it makes us more nervous when we read things like 1 Peter 3.21, which says, Baptism now saves you. What do we do with that? We don't have to worry. Um, there's a way to see this and understand this in a Reformed perspective of Scripture. So let's, let's look at this. It'll take a little bit of time to unpack. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand. Uh, first, we have to determine in this saying, is it the washing of regeneration as one thing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit as another? Or is it the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? You see the two options. Is it two separate things? And some have gone that direction. If that's the case, we're talking about regeneration, washing of regeneration, and 
renewal of the Holy Spirit is probably ongoing progressive sanctification. But on the other hand, um, it, it, it is possible to take this as all referring back to the washing. And that's the way that I understand it. Calvin, many other modern commentaries um, and commentators have understood this. is all talking about the washing. It's a washing of regeneration and of renewal in the Holy Spirit. And it's, it has baptism in view. But how can we say that about baptism? How can we call baptism a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Well, Calvin explains what we're not saying, which is always important. He says this verse doesn't teach that, quote, salvation is contained in the outward symbol of water. No, instead, he says, baptism tells to us the salvation obtained in Christ. Salvation obtained in Christ is told to us in our baptism. And that's a big paradigm shift if we're, not, uh, if we're not careful and we haven't thought through what baptism really is. If we thought of it as our, mainly our pledge of allegiance to God and, and our testimony to the world of what, what we are now committing our lives to, rather, here the accent is on God's pledge to us in baptism, on what God tells us about our interest in Christ. Baptism itself doesn't regenerate and renew. But it does tell us about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Baptism itself doesn't save and renew us, but it does tell us of that renewal and salvation that comes to us through the Spirit. The language we use is it's a visible sign and a a seal or a guarantee of these things to everyone who is baptized and believes. John Stott puts it like this. I thought this was helpful. He says, God saved us through a rebirth and a renewal that were outwardly dramatized in our baptism, but inwardly affected by the Holy Spirit. So the real heart of these verses isn't baptism as some magical force. It's what baptism represents, what it dramatizes for us. And that's the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So instead of giving you some theological definition of what is regeneration, regeneration is the work of, you know, and we could do that, but I want to give you a story and paint a picture. Um, I think it's, it's helpful. I met with a pastor that I met back in March in Cuba um, this last week. It was great catching up with him. And he was showing us this house that he bought in Havana from the 1920s. And they're remodeling it um, to serve as a church building and a place they can train pastors. And he was showing us the pictures. And uh, remodel is one word for it. Um, It was really a major overhaul. You could almost call it a rebuild. They were building this thing almost from the ground up from scratch, uh, starting over. The early church father, Chrysostom, related our regeneration and renewal to building a house that had been torn down, dilapidated. He says, when, you put it, when a house is in shambles, you don't just put props under it. I mean, you could try. Maybe it's a, a stopgap. Um, you don't just add rooms onto the side of the house. Now, what do you do? You level the house and you start from the foundation up. And he says, in our case, God has not repaired us. God has not repaired us. He's made us anew. I think that's very insightful because so many people think that their lives before Christ are just in need of a little sprucing up. You just need a little bit of restoration, maybe a a dab of new paint. Maybe the latest self-help model is is all we need or the latest 12-step program. That that will get us to where we need to be. We just need a little little, remodeling, refurbish. Uh, No, not at all. And if you've ever been there, you've known and tried these things, you know that it's not enough. That doesn't work. We can't fix ourselves any more than we can enter our mother's womb and be born again as Nicodemus scratched his head out, right? It's not something we can do. It's the work 
of the Holy Spirit that builds us from the ground up or maybe better from the inside out. It's an inside out change and it's been a long time coming because we read in Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 and 27. So long ago, this regeneration was promised. This says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you instead a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I think it's spot on what someone has said about this passage that it is one of the Old Testament's most beautiful and most clear anticipations of this inside out change that the spirit would work in our lives. We call it regeneration. And that promise of the Spirit renewing and regenerating us has appeared. We read in our text that the Father has poured out His Holy Spirit richly upon His children through Christ. That saving, renewing, regenerating goodness of God in Christ by His Spirit, even when we were hateful fools, as we've been saying, that radically changes the way that we live. It's not anything we could have deserved and not anything we could have done. It changes the way that we look at others and live humbly towards them as others still in need of God's goodness and grace. So we've seen the foundation, God's mercy to us in Christ, the fount of our salvation, the Holy Spirit poured out on us in Christ. We're going to move through three and four very quickly. But we see two other rich aspects of our salvation in this passage. And the third is our future. The future of our salvation is eternal life with Christ. So God's mercy to us in Christ. the Holy Spirit poured out on us on Christ, in Christ, and now our eternal life with Christ forever. Look at verse 7. It begins, so that, so that. That's a, those words you always have to look out for. Because this is saying, okay, everything we've said thus far applies to what I'm going to say now. So that the salvation founded in God's mercy, salvation for the found of the Holy Spirit, regenerating, renewing us, all of this that we've looked at leads to what follows. And we read, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 3 is really wrapping up this letter. And here Paul is returning to the way he opened the letter in the beginning. It's coming full circle to this, this truth. We read in Titus 1 in the very first verses, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Is he justified by grace alone? We have the hope of eternal life. It's our inheritance as heirs with Christ. And what is this great hope we have? What is eternal life? We can't let it fall into another theological uh, dictionary, another thing in the list of of words to study. What what is this eternal life? It's eternal life with Christ forever. Eternal life is something bound up in the hope that we have in Jesus' return. In Titus 2.13, we read that our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if God's goodness and his loving kindness came to us at Christ's first appearing, we see here at the end our eternal life 
That comes to us at Christ's second appearing when he returns to take us to live with him forever in his presence only because of his grace and mercy. See, that's, that's the point of this letter. That's what Paul is doing. He says that he writes for the sake of the faith of God's elect. In other words, he wants them to believe. He writes for their knowledge of the truth. So he wants that faith to be based in facts and doctrine. And he writes for their godliness, doctrine that has feet, that results in discipleship and a life that honors the Lord. And all of this because of the hope of eternal life, of unending life, of an inheritance with Jesus forever. You know, Pastor Andy made a reference last week about um, the pastoral ministry as preparing people to die. And I think that's so applicable to what Paul is telling Titus to be about in his ministry in Crete. It bears out on what he's telling these Christians to do as they live in a pagan society and a hateful world. They are to submit to authorities who don't honor the Lord. They are to submit to leaders who may very well turn on them and persecute them. They are to show perfect love and courtesy and humility to neighbors who could very well double-cross them and abuse the goodness that they're showing them out of the love they've received from Christ. Are they prepared to die? Are they prepared for whatever may come, knowing that they have the hope of eternal life with Christ? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Are we prepared for that kind of submission, that kind of humility and gentleness and love to others? Are we prepared to die honoring the Lord no matter what comes, because we know we've been justified by grace and we're heirs of eternal life with Christ. So there's one last thing we need to look at together here. We've seen the foundation, we've seen the fount, we've seen the future. Now let's look at the fruit of our salvation. That's how the, the, the passage closes and it's how we'll close this morning. So the fruit of our salvation, number four, is good works because of Christ. Good works because of Christ. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This conclusion to the passage really brings together everything we've looked at this morning. We've talked about what Paul means when he says, This saying is trustworthy, right? This trustworthy saying, this this creedal statement. But it's very interesting what he goes on to say about this faithful summary of gospel truth. He says, I want you to insist on these things. These things. What are they? Salvation by mercy alone. Regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit poured out on us richly in Christ. Justification by grace. The hope of eternal life. He's saying, Titus, I want you to insist on the gospel. I want you to insist on the gospel. And you know what happens when we insist on gospel, gospel, gospel? We're insistent about it. It leads to a change of life. That's what it says here. Insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's our motivation. The gospel is, is excellent. We see these things are excellent and profitable for people. It's excellent. We could stare at it all day. We could become Marys at Jesus' feet, just gazing at the love of our Savior as we think about these wonderful gospel truths. But it's not just excellent, it's profitable. It's profitable. It has practical feet to it. When we reflect on these things, it puts us in our place, reminding us of what we once were and who we are now because of God's grace and mercy to us. And that's what leads us to gentleness, to true humility. Remembering that we were those God-hating fools who deserved 
the severe hand of God's judgment, but instead received his good grace in Jesus Christ. We don't get to be smug. We don't get to be arrogant towards those who still don't get it because they're blinded by sin and desperately in need of this goodness, this mercy and grace. They're nothing less than a mirror of what we used to be before the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior gripped our hearts and made us new. So this puts feet to our faith. Insisting on the gospel puts feet to our faith. It gets rid of the malice and envy and evil speaking that characterized what we used to be, and it gets us living for the good of others in a hateful world. Not speaking evil, but speaking grace. Not quarreling, but being patient like God is patient towards us. It takes away our self-righteous severity towards others, and it replaces it with true humility, gentleness, goodness, love. So God's goodness to us in Christ, when we were hateful fools, teaches us to live for the good of others, even in this hateful world. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come before you. We're so thankful that you have included these things in your word in such a a concise and glorious statement of the gospel. And we pray that that would work in our hearts and lives, Father, that we would see who we are because of Christ and that that would lead us to the way of life that you would have us to live. Father, take away our, our nastiness towards people who still don't know you and instead put in us a true humility, a gentleness, Lord, that wants to rebuke with a redemptive purpose, that wants to bring everyone who will come, Lord, into your kingdom so that they can know and love and serve the great king. Father, we thank you and we ask that you would make this so in our hearts and lives. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.